0: But I think the solution for everyone and for everything, really, is to just be more thoughtful, to to take a step back and to think about the implications of our choices and the sort of origins of our thoughts and to sort of challenge ourselves.
1: You're listening to It's All Dead, a podcast about the music we love and why we love it. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to It's All Dead. I'm Kyle Hawk. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Happy December. Uh the year is uh beginning to round down. I hope that as strange as this holiday season is for everyone that uh, you're still able to find some um find some enjoyment and some peace and um grateful that you are tuning in to the show today. If you haven't had a chance to visit it's all com lately our end of the year lists are up. Um I always talk every single year about how this is one of my favorite things that we do it's so arbitrary it's so silly it's so dumb there's a million lists telling you what the the best things of the year were but i've just always loved ranking things and and thinking back on a a year span of time and what things spoke to me and what meant the most and so uh the team at uh, it's all dead we always have like really great conversations this time of year and uh, really enjoy kind of thinking about the music that was a part of our lives so uh, if you want to check out our list of some of the best albums best songs of the year head on over to it's alldead.com. Today's conversation on the podcast is one that I I was just absolutely thrilled to have. Uh, Today's guest is Rauya Kamir. She is a uh, music critic, writer, editor. Um, You may know her best for her recent work at Pitchfork, but she's also worked in the past at The Fader and The Outline. Um, She's also an assistant teaching professor at the Public Communications School at Syracuse University. And I uh, have been following her writing for a while and um, just Really love every single thing that she puts out. But earlier this year, back in October, she, um, put out a piece called Rethinking Appropriation and Wokeness in Pop Music. And, uh, this, this article really resonated with me. It's, it's something that I think about often and, you know, operating a website and having this podcast and all the ways that we talk about music on our site. Um, and, and this article I thought just really hit on a lot of things that, um, I've been trying to kind of unpack in my own mind. And so I reached out to her and asked her if she'd be willing to come on the podcast and talk about it a little bit and expand on some of the thoughts that she, uh, that she shared in the article. And, uh, fortunately she said yes. And she is, uh, here today to chat. Um, we also talked about, you know, kind of her background and, you know, where she kind of fell in love with music and, um, you know, went into music journalism and so there's a lot of really great stuff um that kind of leads up to um everything that she's done as a as a writer and a critic and then of course we dive into the article so i really hope that you'll enjoy this conversation without further ado let's jump into it this is raoya kamir she is a writer, critic, and uh, editor, and also now a teacher, an assistant teaching professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Um, you, if you you know follow our podcast and you're passionate about reading about music, you've probably read her work. She's um, currently a contributing editor at Pitchfork, and uh, earlier this year was actually nominated for a 2020 National Magazine Award. She's um, just a, an incredible thinker and writer, and I'm excited to have her on the show. Raya, w- welcome uh, to the podcast.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled and looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, in these conversations, when I get to talk with kind of other writers and uh, music critics, I always like to kind of start by hearing a little bit of background because um, I'm always fascinated to kind of learn where somebody gained an interest in music, which I'm sure was at a very young age, but how that kind of built into you wanting to write about music and be involved from a journalistic uh, side of things.
0: Um, so. I suppose it was at a young age that I became interested in music, although I maybe have a non-traditional relationship with access to music in the sense that I was um, I was born in Sudan, but I, I spent most of my early life in, in Abidjan in, in Cote d'Ivoire. And this was in the 90s. So at a time when, you know, eventually we had internet access, but this was at a time when, you know, Napster wasn't around quite yet. Um, and yet yeah. we didn't have like, you know, traditional music stores like I couldn't just go to the Mm -hmm. HMV and buy whatever I was interested in so I you know sort of um, became obsessed with the little music that I had access to which ran the gamut from like you know my mom's Simon and Garfunkel that she would play in the car while driving us to school to friends listening to Mariah Carey to like you know my my brother being interested in groups like Wu-Tang and so I I have I had and still have so many knowledge gaps, but my relationship was always sort of marked by enthusiasm because I had such little access growing up um, to the music that I was interested in.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And so that's, uh, you know, how did that grow into like, this is something that I want to like experience more of I want to write about I want to like share my thoughts about like what was what did that part of the journey look like for you?
0: So sort of the, the the twin relationship I had there was with magazines. So when magazines would make their way to us, English magazines, that is, I just sort of savored them and would read them over and over from front to back and sort of developed this notion that I wanted to be a writer at some point. Um, but then when I was a little bit older, I thought, well, actually maybe working in the music industry is what I'm more interested in. And I sort of imagined a future for myself where I would be an A&R Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, this was at a time when that was like a a legitimate uh, ambition that could be rewarded with a real job. Um, And I don't really know. Things just took all kinds of turns and I abandoned it for a while. And I I ended up um, in college, moving to Toronto for college. Um, Huge music scene, especially at the time that I was there. You know, you couldn't really throw a stone without hitting... Um, some live show featuring some random assortment of like BSS or Death From Above or whatever the, the case was. Um, so I music was a, like became central to my social life, but I had sort of given up on it as anything that I would do professionally. And then I ended up um, becoming interested in pursuing journalism and I moved to New York to go to grad school Um, and did my master's in journalism at Columbia. And because I was an international student, I couldn't um, legally work for money. So I had to Mm. just sort of get an an internship that was unofficial in the sense that um, it, you know, I couldn't get paid for it. So I ended up getting an internship with an MP3 blog at the time called record label. And that was affiliated with downtown records. Um, okay. and then I don't really know. Then all of a sudden I graduated and I was a tech reporter for a couple of years and then music stuff just started coming my way. I suppose because I had cultivated this personal um relationship with it and people that i knew who were editors were were like well she knows something about music and she can put a sentence together let's ask her if she wants to you know review this mia album or or whatever and it just completely all of all of my interests are sort of collided by accident i think is what i'm trying to say
1: yeah that's uh that's an awesome story and i Um, you know, it kind of segues into something I was interested in, in talking with you about because we, you know, kind of, as you mentioned, growing up reading magazines and kind of consuming our, um music criticism and in, in that way um but by the time that you know we're actually writing the you know the the landscape has changed where everything's pretty much digital and so um it, it's it's fascinating to think about that kind of evolution that's really happened as far as our generation goes and how we were able to create and distribute content what is that even in the time of of your career in writing about music how How have you seen things evolve and and I guess I ask it in this way in that um you you know you're someone that uh, in the past couple of years has certainly been uh you know artists reacting poorly to a critic writing about them is is nothing new that's a, that goes back as as far as people have been creating art and then uh writing about art but it's a little bit different today i think just because of the the landscape of social media and followings and the way things can kind of like bubble up into something bigger i mean that that's not something that we saw even five or ten years ago What are, what are the biggest changes you've seen from back when you were starting to you know the the work you're doing today
0: yeah I mean, I think you really um identified some of or alluded to some of the major ones on the one hand, it's you know there was the idea that um that things took a while right so uh even in the in the sort of earlier um half or third of my career, the sort of relationship between the the music industry and the media looked different in the sense that you could really expect advances for huge albums um uh, yeah. And you would sort of, there wasn't an expectation that you would turn around a review um, overnight, for instance. Um, although, you mm-hmm. know, the things that have changed that involving the technology side of things like leaks, et cetera, had, had, you know, been around for a while, but the relationship um, between the industry and the, and the sort of popular press um, looked really different, I think, than it does today. And to yeah. that end, Um, the relationship between artists and critics in particular, but journalists in general, um, has also sort of become antagonistic. It started to look a lot more like what we expect from athletes in the press in this day and age. Mm. Um, But as that relationship was evolving, so too was the relationship between readers and critics and uh, fans and artists. So, you know, the emergence of things like fan bases or stand bases we we don't really think of that as um, an entirely new phenomenon because it's not, but right. the ways that technology and sort of cultural norms have interrupted that relationship are really significant. So people and things that once upon a time would have been anonymous are now taking up all kinds of space um, uh, and, you know, sucking up all kinds of air that once yeah. upon a time would have happened Um, if not entirely offline, then at least in sort of niche areas of the social
1: Mm web. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, if, if there's anywhere that you're going to write about music and expect that your writing is going to provoke uh, extreme reactions, um, Pitchfork is kind of the epicenter, right? <laughs> or at least that, that's kind of the, <laughs> yeah. the, the perception. So like, what is, what is that experience like for you? And kind of knowing that like, hey, like even like it amplifies something that's already a reality as a writer and that you're going to put something out and people are going to react to it. But obviously, um, you know, a pitchfork, it, it, I, I feel like it kind of takes that to the, um, a whole new level.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting as you know someone who read Pitchfork for a long time before I started writing for it, I you know was very much aware of the climate, um, but I also didn't understand the extent to which the publication has a kind of visibility um, that is viscerally felt. So it's it's yeah it's been it's been interesting. Um, it's very clear that people are often reacting to the number at the top of the review uh-huh. which is the first thing you see and i get yep. that but i don't really care very much about the number and i never have even when i was only a reader of pitchwork. in part because i think of it as like you know when you like go to the doctor or or rather if you go to the to urgent care or an emergency room if you had the misfortune of being um that ill or in that much pain, you know, you often get asked what level of pain you're at. The nurses will ask you to rate your pain from a Uh level of one to 10. And the number that you give them isn't actually, uh, you know, that's not a real rating of your, of your actual pain. It's just a way for them to be able to, to, to launch a conversation with you about next steps about, and sort of figure out what Mm -hmm. they need to do for you as a patient. And so that's how I think of those numbers um, at the top of the pitchwork page it's just really an entry point to the conversation um but yeah. of course i recognize that not everyone uh views those numbers that way and on the one hand it is really wonderful that people care so much but on the other hand you know i do find myself often asking into the ether did, did you even read
1: Yes, I am very familiar with that feeling. And it's funny, like that, that's actually the best analogy I've ever heard to describe it. And I feel like this from, for most music writers, like it's, it's my least favorite part of the review. And it's also the last thing I do. Like after I've written my actual thoughts, I'm like, okay, now I have to like figure out like what this means in a score form. And I, I never feel (laughs) like I actually get it right most of the time. So it's just a, it's one of those things that you kind of have to do because of the expectation of how people consume it but you also know that in a way you're marginalizing your own voice because there's all you know going to be people that just look at the numbers so it's a totally yeah and
0: it's in the beginning I really struggled with it well maybe not struggled but I had a lot more I thought a lot more about it in the beginning because I would think well if I'm giving this album or if I'm suggesting that this album deserves a 7.8 and I just gave this other album a 7.2 does that mean that I think this album is 0. 0.6 better than that <laughs> yeah. other one. And that's just not a real way to, to, to yeah. answer that question. Um, so I, I also empathize with readers who are having these uh, conversations or thoughts without the power of, you know, participating in their review process.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, your reviews are great. Um, but you also write a lot of other amazing things. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, I really am excited to talk with you about, um, rethinking appropriation of wokeness and pop music, um, that got published back in October. Take me back to the Genesis of this article, because this, um, something that was fascinating to me is that it, it makes so much sense that, What you were saying feels like the perfect encapsulation of the conversation right now in 2020, but your article doesn't feel confined to this year. It's very expansive, both into the past and the future in terms of all of these things. There's so much going on and what you're writing there. And I'm really interested to kind of know uh, from your perspective where like getting, putting this together even started from.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for that um, interpretation of it. That's very generous. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly something uh, that I have been thinking about for years, and there are ideas in there that have shown up in previous things that I've written or in conversations that I've had, or um, you know, in just sort of like random notes that I've scribbled to myself. Um, and there are certainly ideas in there that have come up in my reviews, uh, in the sense that I what I'm interested in is, you know, people, not baselines. Per se, you know what I mean. Like, I, mm-hmm. of course, I care yeah. about music, but I am way more interested in the um, implications of the the art than the art itself. I think, um, which is probably something that will get me in trouble with many pitchfork readers for saying, but it's true. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um,
0: and so, for this particular piece, I um, it had I first pitched it to my editor Jill Mapes um, a year ago, actually, in the beginning of december of last year and um but i didn't start sort of get around to it um probably i think i wrote it in in april or so or just over a couple of weeks um actually maybe a little bit later than that the sort of the landing of the pandemic definitely interrupted things sure, um
1: yeah.
0: but um yeah i would say i wrote it over a couple of weeks at some point in the middle of the year and uh and then it just sort of sat in in um, in in Google Drive land for a while. Um, and uh, there was just so much going on in the world that on the one hand, a lot of the themes, I think, of the piece felt really relevant. But on the other hand, I also just sort of felt like, well, who cares? Like none of this even matters, you know? Mm. Um, so it sat around for a while before um, it ended up. Um, going through the editing process, which probably took a couple of weeks. Um, And then it just sort of happened. It got published. I'd say it actually looks really close to my original draft. Um, So not a very interesting story there, but it is, it is probably the thing that has um, uh, stressed me out the most in terms of um, the, sort of weeks leading up to sitting down and writing is is probably the thing that I've written that has been the most intensely, um, stressful.
1: Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. The thing that I love about it is that it felt like someone was kind of unraveling or untangling all these thoughts in real time that so many other, um, people are trying to do as well, but the way that you articulated it, um, I felt like it was like, this is what I've been trying to get my brain to. This is what I've been trying to like figure out how to say in my head, but I just have not been able to get there. And obviously we, we have a website where we talk about music and we have a podcast where we talk about music and these conversations are very close to our heart. And I, I feel like if we have a place where we're going to say things, then we have to be able to, to say them well and talk about them well. And obviously, you know, for just to kind of jump into the article you talk about when this, you know, the, the conversation of cultural appropriation kind of came into the popular music Zeitgeist into the conversation, even though these things have been a part of the conversation before, it wasn't really understood in the context that it, that it came into around. I think you kind of talked about 2013 as being this year that kind of signified the beginning of people starting to try to understand how are we going to talk about this um, when it comes to music. And from, so from a, a music critic and, and writer standpoint, I really identified um, with a lot of that because I just felt like you did a really great job of, um, again, kind of untangling all these thoughts and putting it into like something that felt very real for right now of of what people are trying to understand with all of it.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I think the thing is we forget sometimes that we can, you know, the internet, of course people have, um, I mean, the the, sort of the statistics suggest that people have shorter attention spans than they once did or we once did. But you can. You don't have to only write 280 character length thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. And that was part of why I wanted to to do this is a sort of reminder that um, some of these ideas are really complex and nuanced and can't be tackled in short or quick pieces. And that's okay. That's not to say everything should be a 5,000 word essay, but um, sometimes that's simply what it takes. And I was really surprised and pleased that um, so many people seem to have um, stuck with it the, the entire way through, because I do recognize that while it's necessary, um, from my perspective as a writer, uh, it is also a lot to ask of a reader to sit with you for that long.
1: Sure. Well, um, yeah, well, again, it's an excellent piece. And I want to talk about a few parts of it here with you. Um, going back to, again, you kind of begin the, the article and talking about, um, cultural appropri- appropriation coming into the conversation as people are saying this as like a, a term and trying to understand, um, what it means as we talk about all of the, the ways in which it applies talk to me a little bit and you covered this a little bit in the article, but talk to me about your understanding of when it kind of came into the general vernacular versus when it came, like when it turned into like actual meaningful conversations, how did you, how did you see that in terms of timeline and the way that um, that whole process started to play out?
0: In terms of it popping up on the internet and sort of puncturing Um, dominant culture, it really would have been in the early 2010s, you know, there were all of these conversations about um, uh, Coachella and Halloween, and we started to really see the idea of cultural appropriation as it related to visual signifiers of culture. So a lot of it had to do with the way people were misappropriating indigenous culture. So I was thinking a lot about like, I think, for a very long time, I had an idea or I had an understanding that I should never wear a, a, an indigenous headdress without mm-hmm. um, explicit um, sort of permission or a cultural um, uh, context that makes it make sense. But I don't know that I knew what the exact language was um, until I got to, to college, probably, and started reading some, um, some sociology, but then it just, it, it popped back up on the internet, um, in a way that sort of, and it's not that it took me by surprise, but it just, we were all, we all seem to be having, or not all of us, rather, I should say, many people in one part of the internet seem to be having the same conversation at the same time. And yet that conversation didn't seem to spill over beyond, um, beyond some of those places online in the sense that, yeah. you know, you would still go to Party City and see the, the um, you know, the racist um, Native American referencing Halloween costumes. So clearly there was a divide, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then I sort of started taking a lot of those conversations offline. And, and over the sort of years that followed, I started realizing that many of my friends were uh, digging a little bit deeper, like many of us were had started reading a lot more theory and um, thinking about the sort of limitations of of, um, of Twitter and Instagram as sort of places to have meaningful conversation. So the more that I had those conversations in real life, the more that I realized that that disconnect um, didn't have to sort of play out in my own life, if that makes right. any sense.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think what's interesting, and, and this wasn't really touched on, um, in the, in the article per se, but it's, it's implied in what you're saying here is that you've got these people that are working through these conversations and trying to understand better and how to move forward. And then you've got like a whole other sect of people that aren't thinking about it at all, right? But they, st- these are still people that consume art and come to criticism to, learn more about the art that they're consuming, but there's this gap that's happening in terms of the conversation. And it uh, there's a, little snippet of your, um, article that I wanted to read here, where you say, um, around 2013 for two or three years that followed race and race play became increasingly common lenses through which we digest and discuss pop music segments of the public watched named and critiqued. For example, Miley Cyrus, uh, bangers era racial performance, how she was profiting from black women while rendering them invisible. What was just, dis- uh, disparagingly dismissed as outrage culture could have more generously been understood as a collective grappling with concepts that weren't new, but were newly front and center. And I think that gets to the heart of that concept of you've got these people like hearing these things that have already been thought about and started to work through. And the only way to respond to that, if you have no baseline for it, is like, oh, this is... You, you call it outrage culture, but really, um, it is that collective grappling with all of the concepts that weren't new just in the general vernacular. Um, is I mean, am, am I getting it? I think. It, let me know if I'm completely missing the the point there, or if that kind of hits on something that you were um, that you were trying to to hit on.
0: No, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, that's that's certainly a, a big part of it. Um, and I think what's really important to note is that. I don't expect anyone to come into any of this, any of these conversations fully formed and, you know, uh, fully, you know, none of, we all grow and learn, like we all have to start from somewhere. And I think that um, often what is lacking is the sort of next step where you go from being defensive because you feel like you are maybe being implicated in whatever um, issue is, is, Um, being discussed to sort of understanding it and then unpacking it and then sort of potentially coming up with solutions. So one of the reasons we are, we are in this like solutionless world in so many senses is because so many of us are stuck on the sort of defensiveness of that first step um, and the sort of ego part of it, which I completely understand. It's, it's natural uh, as a reaction, but unfortunately we live in this, in this culture that does not encourage self-reflection that is not, encourage no. um a sort of um uh personal political evolution and on the contrary it sort of ritualizes forgetting in the sense that mm. we are supposed to think of forgetting as like we're just all supposed to forget you know and yeah. if if we're constantly forgetting and we consider forgetting to be the basis for um for how we live our lives and there's no way that um, any of us can can get any better
1: yeah exactly well, I want to, um, kind of transition the focus of, of this, um, from the article into terms of how it applies from, um, a music criticism and, and, and music journalistic angle. And so one of the things that you talked about, and, and just in terms of that personal evolution and growth, as these conversations develop, there's going to be exercises in missing the point. And you talk about that in the article and the ways that manifested itself in certain ways, in terms of, um, representation, not being a specific thing that solves a problem while it's a good thing inherently in itself. That was one example of like, Oh, this is like one step we can take, but this isn't like an ultimate problem solver of this ongoing conversation that we're having. And one of the things I want to talk about from, um, from a, a music writing angle is, you know, what do we miss as music journalists when we focus solely on representation in our coverage? And how can we be more thoughtful and meaningful? Um, with the voices that we elevate. And I'm, I'm being very selfish in asking this question mm-hmm. myself because this is something that I think a lot. I mean, we've, we've worked hard with It's All Dead of like, we want to, um, have a, a much more wide array of the, of the types of voices that we're covering and the voices that we're writing about. And that is like one good thing, but that's not necessarily an end all be all to solving some sort of problem. So what are, what, what do you view as, uh, kind of the next steps or the next, um, phase of evolution as, um, as we think about that as as music critics?
0: You know, I don't really know that I have a, um, an, a, a satisfying answer to that, although it's certainly something that I think about a lot and it's something that I have talked a lot about with my students this past semester. Um, I think that it's really easy, and we all do this, to unintentionally... Um, flatten someone into whatever parts of their identities are most visible um, and we certainly do it to ourselves because it can be advantageous in some in some instances but I think the solution for for everyone and for everything really is to just be more thoughtful to to take a step back and to think about um, the the implications um, of of our, um, of our of our of our choices and the sort of origins of our thoughts and to sort of challenge ourselves um, I don't really know that I can ask for for much more than that yeah, well, that's, I, yeah. I, that's, it's like the least satisfying answer and I feel horrible about that but I really don't <laughs> know what I can you know what anyone can do other than think a little bit more deeply carefully critically and compassionately. And whether that comes into, you know, your actual work as a critic or into hiring decisions or into, you know, how you think about your peers, whatever the case may be. I I really think if we don't have that, um, we won't have much else.
1: Yeah, no, that's a very graceful response. And I, I really appreciate that um, one of the other things that the, um, that you touched on in the article, um, as this kind of all weaves together is this idea of, um, you know, problematic artists and you, and you even referenced something that felt very familiar to me, um, where, you know, even if we go back to like 2015 or 2016, um, I can figure out which parts of Kanye West I want to keep in my life or which parts I, 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 want to not deal with in order to still enjoy the art. But then we, you know I, I feel like the past several years we 've all been in this place of like trying to figure out like what what art can I still actually consume in good conscience or what art can I still elevate in good conscience um, with all of this information that we have and all of these these troubling things so with that, and this is another question that i don 't think um, has a a real solid answer, but I'm interested in, in your perspective on it is what do we do with the art of problematic artists as a music critic? Um, when to your point, if we don't actually understand, uh, the problem itself, we're missing a critical part of the conversation. You, you touch on that in the article.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is the, the question of our, of our, of our time. Um, and my answer shifts from day to day and moment to moment and, artist to artist and context to context, I don't think there is a one size fits all solution. And that's a good thing, right? Like, I don't think yeah. we should be expected to treat, for instance, someone like Kanye West, who genuinely I find infuriating and unnerving and uh, embarrassing and awful in many ways. I don't, I don't think we should be expected to treat him in the same way that we treat someone like R. Kelly, who we mm-hmm. know uses the fruits of his musical labor or has anyway to, to, Literally abuse people, right? So, yep. uh, and that's not. I think what I'm saying is that um, it we need to acknowledge that each case is different, and we cannot, although it would be convenient, um, have a single approach to every single case. And I know that these are conversations and debates that have been raging, um, and I recognize that there are. Uh, sort of reasons in favor of um, ignoring someone completely if their bad behavior um, warrants it. And there are yeah. arguments in favor of doing the opposite. Um, and I understand all of them. And I have, I think, been on all sides of it. Um, yeah. yeah. I think ultimately, though, we just have to recognize um, again, as I said, I think we have to recognize the implications. What does, what is it, what does it mean? What are we actually responding to? Are you mm-hmm. responding to the fact that someone like 6ix9ine has a huge fan base in part because of his perceived bad behaviors? Or are we responding to what we think the industry has failed to, um, to do in terms of rewarding um, certain people over others? you know, what are we at? What is the actual conversation about? And it's really easy to lump all of those things into into one when often they are quite disparate threads of, of, of thought.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's just continuing. Um, it, it's continuing to work through hard conversations. And I certainly don't fault anyone that wants to throw up their hands and, and walk away from certain um, artists or, or art. Um, that's completely valid and all different kinds of contexts, but there's also a place to like, continue to try to figure out how we're going to talk about it because it's there. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but it's, um, certainly something that we, we can't really walk away from. Um, and it, it it leads me to what I loved about the end of, um, your article. You, you talked about, um, qualities exhibited by no name. Um, and I'm, Kind of taking this out of context to the article, but I think it comes back to everything that we 've been talking about. You mentioned vulnerability, accountability, surrendering power, and committing to honesty, even at the risk of being wrong in public. Um, I really, really loved that um, because that 's really the only way you can approach this is like especially if you 're someone who 's like writing things or talking about things and talking about this stuff and putting it out there, you are very much at risk of people being like, Hey, you're wrong about that. And that's going to suck for a while. And then you kind of have to figure out like, how, what am I going to learn from this experience to kind of continue having a productive conversation going forward? Um, talk a little bit uh, about what, uh, why that was so powerful to you and, and what it means to you just in your, in your own work as a writer and and, and now as a professor.
0: You know, I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 thank you for picking up on that because those are things that I was thinking about in the context of, um, of, of of music and pop culture and criticism, but also just I think it's applicable just in life in general, right? Those are some of the qualities that I want to model in my own life on the internet as a writer and also just elsewhere personally. Um, I think one of the things that I've really found myself coming up against, and this is um, uh really sort of reflective of the way we interact with 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 music and the way we interact with media in this day and age is that you know we treat a single review of a single album as though it's going to be the 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 only one the only entry in the category, right. Mm-hmm. This okay. is not going to be, this is, I mean, sometimes it's someone's first, but for the most part, this is not the last album, right? We are not, yeah. this is not a, a judgment on someone's existence. This is not a judgment on someone's entire career. We're just simply talking about this entry in their catalog. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really easy to miss that, that sort of, um, that. There's, it's almost it's a loving, I, I think of criticism in, when it's done in good faith as a sort of loving thing. Um, yeah. And it's really easy to miss that when you forget or, or conveniently ignore uh, the fact that there have been reviews before and there will be reviews after because there have been songs and albums before and there will be songs mm-hmm. and albums after, right? So nothing is is definite. Everything is a part of a, of a sort of larger process and a larger conversation. And if I am wrong this time, then I hope that that means I will have the opportunity to be a little bit less wrong next time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that applies to, to art too, right? Like sometimes yeah. um, you make things that are wonderful and right on and innovative and perfect for the moment or, or whatever, or received in a way that aligns with your values or your goals. Um, and sometimes you miss the mark on that. And both of those are a completely acceptable ways, um, to, to exist in the world as an artist and as a critic, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, that's excellent. And, uh, this is, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you, um, being willing to kind of talk through some of these topics and, and um, everything you covered in the the article. Um, I, I want to wrap up by taking a really, uh, hard left turn here because this is obviously the the time of the year where all of the the lists are hitting the internet we've we've released our best albums of the year best songs of the year um and so um, while I have you here um I was interested in um, if you'd be willing to share you know a few of the uh, maybe a few of the albums this year, not necessarily in a ranking form, but just a, a few that have kind of spoken to you or been um, of value to you or important to you um, just as as we kind of end the year there are there a few that uh, stick out that you'd be interested in in mentioning
0: um yeah let's see I mean certainly this year my relationship to music has been um, different than in past years but I think uh what I'd say let's see probably my the most important um, album to me to see here was um the um the serpent with feet ep um uh apparition it was called apparition so it's a three song ep with three i believe perfect songs that I have listened to literally on repeat for much of the year. Um awesome. I have, you know, have been a fan of his for a really long time, but when this EP dropped very early in quarantine, it, it really felt like a religious experience for me. Yeah. Um so cannot recommend um Serpent with Feet enough. Um let's see, what else have I been listening to? I don't even know. Um I, you know, like everyone else, um really loved um uh in terms of pitchforky music certainly loved saint cloud probably one of my favorite albums Mm -hmm. of the year Listen to it a lot uh i liked some of the newer drake singles um did not expect to but i for some reason think that when he works with dj khaled um they just have a lot of fun together and it it works for me as a sort of um you know like helps me get out of bed in the morning, even if it's not the energy that I want to run my day on. Um, sometimes a little Drake and DJ Khaled helps.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> uh,
0: and uh, finally, I will say um, an- another album that really, really um, I thought was incredible um, was uh, Dialectic Soul by um, the South African um, sort of experimental Jazz musician, Asher mm. Gamete, who, um, in addition to making this incredible album, also is just a fascinating thinker um, who, and it's funny, I had been listening to the album a lot over the summer and in the fall. And then um, a few weeks ago, one of my really good friends, Anupa Mystery, who is probably my favorite critic ever, um, sent me yeah. his thesis uh, and it, I read the entire thing, and I was riveted. And it took me a second to connect that this was the, the same person whose album I had been listening to for months. So wow. that was a nice little unexpected twist. And yeah. uh, I recommend both of this, both of those things: the album and his um, his thesis, which is available somewhere on the internet.
1: Yeah, well, that is excellent. Thank you for sharing all that. This has certainly been a year. Um, unlike any other in terms of, I, I mean, for me and I'm sure lots of other people in terms of consuming music, um, I, you know, as we were kind of working through our end of the year stuff, I just kept going back and thinking about, um, the way that I approached music just as a, n- not in terms of writing it, but in terms of just a, a human, um, listening to music this year, because th- there were certainly times where I needed something that was a, just a complete escape. Um, yeah. but there were times where that f- also felt really disingenuous to like where I was at or what I was really feeling. And I don't know that I, I felt that to a degree, um, to which I did this year, which made it really almost complicated to figure out how to talk about like, well, what was the best music of the year? Because it, uh, um, certainly was just such a, um, not a great year. And, and so many things that I think were, um, factors in, in ways that they normally aren't <laughs> when we get to the yeah, end of the year and we're trying to think totally. about music or something. So it's just, it was a really and strange.
0: And time also was weird this year, right? So it's Mm -hmm. even, I had, so I imagine this was the case for you too. I had so many moments of, wait a minute, was that even this year? So the sort of traditional way that we think about time and the way that as music critics, we think about music in the context of the sort of arbitrary marker of a year um, was super weird this year Mm -hmm. too. So I feel you on that. Yeah.
1: Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to talk with me and again, um, keep up the great work and um just yeah, thank you for for uh being a much needed um a much needed voice.
0: Well that is very kind. Thank you so much for having me. I love this.
1: All right. Again, just a a delightful uh, conversation. Thank you again to Raya for coming on the podcast to chat with us. If you haven't had a chance to check out her work, please do so. Um, you can find a lot of it at Pitchfork. And of course, she has her own personal website with um, various links to uh, some of the, some of the work that she's done. Uh, thanks again for listening to the show. If you like our show, Subscribe, follow on your favorite podcast app, and of course, come leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what you think. That is going to do it for today's show. I'm Kyle Hawk. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the It's All Dead podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then visit us at It'sAllDead.com for the latest music news, reviews, and much more.